So tonight we are continuing with our readings and commentaries of the fundamental text of spirituality, of Indian spirituality, that is the Bhagavad Gita, in which Krishna, the Avatara, one of the divine teachers of this planet, teaches to Arjuna, his friend and disciple, the laws of karma yoga, the laws of action, the laws of spiritual action. But in the process, as you are going to see, Krishna goes through almost the whole gamut of spiritual experience and through almost the whole range of spiritual teachings. Krishna mentions so many things, some of them passingly, some of them going into detail, that it is not without reason that Mahatma Gandhi used to call Bhagavad Gita the Bible of the Hindus. And we were at our last lecture in the chapter number two, where after showing his despondency, Arjuna lists the evils of doing war and his being caught between the hammer and the anvil, and Krishna comes strong to him and takes him really hard and says, what are you, a coward, are you a man of no word and this and that, and he starts with some abrupt teachings from the Sankhya philosophy. He teaches him something which today would be a sort of jnana yoga. He teaches him what today would be equivalent with what in Agama we'd call the metaphysical workshop. He teaches him the metaphysical basics. He reminds to Arjuna of the nature of Atman. He reminds to him that spirit is transcendent and therefore untouchable. He reminds to him that spirit cannot be killed and cannot kill. He reminds to him that um, the spirit drops the old bodies as clothes and then through metempsychosis, through reincarnation, goes into new bodies and simply tries to refer to such abstract and high things so that Arjuna should see that actually this killing which he fears is very much a matter of illusion. It's just a point of view. Of course, this point of view is very radical and many modern people will deride it and will consider it total bollocks and would consider it so easily abusable. Like if you think in the way of Krishna, then the Spanish Inquisition was right because the spirit doesn't die and it's better to stop the person performing demonic acts which will send the person to hell rather than... So basically, this way of thinking, it's very abstract, it's very fanatic, it's very extreme. It, it's like more than the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Taliban's put together. It's really extreme and therefore... Um, for many people, this is like, right, you know, we are having some very old extreme philosophy and Krishna, in the name of that philosophy, is going basically to advise Arjuna to do pretty much anything, pretty much everything. And of course, even Arjuna, although he is a citizen of a previous yuga and his mind is different, his understanding is different, he lives in a different context and he is grown up in a totally different context, even for Arjuna, 
this reminder which is correct, like Krishna metaphysically is right, but this abrupt reminder is far from being enough. It will take almost 18 chapters, 17 chapters to convince Arjuna to really bring him to the truth of the things. That's why this abrupt beginning of Krishna is very luminous. It's like a standard, like Krishna from the beginning raises the stakes at very high standards and says that's the spiritual truth, that's what we want to look upon the world from. But it's definitely not enough because many people would say it's too difficult for me to live my life by such lofty principles. I can't believe in those things. They are so perfect, they are so transcendent that I hardly can grasp them. And that is why Krishna will not stop here and in the shloka, in the verse at number 39, he said, this which was taught to you until now is the knowledge as it is coming from Sankhya. As I said already, Sankhya is an old philosophical system. It's called today in academic studies, in scholarship, one of the six darshanas of Hinduism. It's one of the six philosophical paths. And it is well known in the world of yoga because most of the words from Sankhya are being used in classical yoga. In the yoga of Patanjali, Patanjali constantly uses words such as Prakriti, Purusha, the Gunas, Chitta, the mind, and others. All those words are not invented by Patanjali. They were used in even older texts of philosophy written by the Sankhya philosophers. That's why when you read Academia in yoga, when you read PhD on yoga, you are going to see that involuntarily the classical yoga, not all the forms of yoga, but the classical yoga, the yoga of Patanjali is kind of entwined very closely with Sankhya. Not in practice, because Sankhya doesn't really have any practice. Sankhya it's a philosophy, but in terms of terminology, like Patanjali, and therefore a lot of the classical yoga uses the formalism, uses the words, uses the terminology from Sankhya. The yogis did not bother to invent new words for spirit and matter. There, those words existed in India and they were Purusha and Prakriti. So they just imported them wholesale. The whole system with all the tattvas, with all the earth, water, fire, all these are not brought forth by the yogis. They already existed. It doesn't mean that yoga was lacking the creativity to invent its own words. It means that in India there existed before Patanjali other great yogis, other great enlightened beings, the great rishis that founded the Vedic tradition and others. And those people had already seen the truth, had already set forth the basic doctrines, the basic understanding of the universe and only that they used methods which are more abstract. In the Sankhya philosophy, it's more like Atman. Atman is transcendent. The sword doesn't cut it, the fire doesn't burn it, the water doesn't drench it, and the wind doesn't dry it up, and it's not here, it's not there, it's not up, it's not down. And then, this was enough. In those yugas, people thinking like this, 
they would already go in samadhi. That was all the yoga they needed. All the yoga they needed was just a bit of philosophy. Thinking highly. Thinking of the fundamental principles was setting their mind into attunement and they were already in Ajna, in Sahasrara, and they would go into states of superconsciousness. As humanity decayed, such methods became very thin, too rarefied, too light. Human beings needed the kicks in the butt of a much more strong type to move from their ignorance and from the low condition of consciousness. And that's why yoga became more and more concrete, more and more material. And that is why, again, Sankhya is a sort of forerunner of yoga, but it's more like a philosophy. And Krishna tells him, Arjuna, I told to you the truth according to Sankhya, so we could say according to a philosophical, metaphysical understanding. Hear it now in terms of yoga. Yoga being for Krishna something which is much more practical, action-related. And he says, endowed with yoga, with your intellect established in yoga, O Arjuna, you shall cast off the bonds of action. Therefore, he says, now I'm going to give you the same story, but from a slightly different angle. He calls it yoga, simply, in Sanskrit. And this will liberate you from the bonds of action. Action in Sanskrit language, is karma. So this will liberate you from the bonds of karma. That's the big ideal in all the Oriental spirituality, not only in yoga, not only in Hinduism, by the Buddha, by the Mahavira in Jainism, to liberate oneself from karma. That's the dream of all those seekers, of all those mystics. And Krishna says, with yoga, you can liberate yourself from karma. That's a fundamental statement because Krishna from the beginning says yoga is a method to burn out the karma that is coming from the mouth of a divine avatar who introduces yoga like this. Throughout the book, often when, for example, Krishna compares knowledge with yoga, he means mostly karma yoga. But karma yoga is like yoga of action. And if you do pranayama, it is a sort of karma yoga because you do action. So Krishna, in a very high spirit, because Krishna, when teaching these, is obviously teaching from a very high level of consciousness. And at that level of consciousness, like Krishna speaks in a language which has many, many levels of understanding. Krishna is like speaking from samadhi. Krishna is speaking in a state of spiritual trance. And that's why his words are mantras. He does not just babble like an ordinary Tom, Dick and Harry. His words are not just words of ordinary wisdom. His words are divine words. And that is why when Krishna speaks, his words hide many, hide many meanings. There are multiple layers of meanings in the way Krishna speaks. As you are going to see in some of the shlokas, it's flabbergasting how Krishna expresses two, three, or even several things at the same time with that shloka. And that's why actually here at this level, when Krishna says, now I told you the story according to Sankhya, now because 
that's insufficient for you obviously hear it according to yoga which will make it a little bit more pragmatic also because yoga is known as being a practical thing the yogi is being practical then automatically Krishna uh, would speak about yoga in general as you are going to see in the chapter 2 the way Krishna speaks about from the standpoint of yoga is more like the yoga of the mind Krishna describes almost like mostly Raja Yoga. He will speak about the Gunas, the modalities of Ajna Chakra. He will speak about the Samskaras in the mind. He will speak about the desires. He will speak about the control of the mind and bringing the mind to a state of non-duality. He constantly speaks about the mind and its relationship with spirit. And that is why actually here the first beginning is beautiful because now Krishna comes from philosophical approach to something yogic very high still but quite yogic funnily enough no in this chapter yet Krishna does not speak clearly about karma yoga per se he speaks about yoga as a general treasure like then there is the yoga of the yogis in India everybody knew that there were yogis here and there and that these people had a discipline and a special teaching and therefore Krishna speaks about yoga in general and classical yoga was one of the central cores of it that's where Patanjali derived his things and he refers very much to a mental yoga to a third eye type of yoga and he starts with a general principle which was one of the shlokas of Vijnana Bhairava which touched me a lot when I first read it many years ago because he says in this yoga no effort is lost and there will be no obstacle or contrary effect it's beautiful he says, even a little of this dharma, of this spiritual path, delivers one from the great fear. The great fear in classical yoga and in Buddhism and in the oriental philosophy is of course the fear of death. Every human being has a fear of death and that fear of death is cryptical and it is hidden and it is perversely eroding us it is gnawing at us from inside like a wild animal and it's eating us from within and because of the fear of death people make lots of things lots of horrendous things people imagine that they are if they are going to have children they are somehow going to live further through their children and they procreate everybody is crazy instinctively to procreate because that is a sort of fighting with your own fear of death if your children live your DNA lives in them a little bit and it's like part of you will continue living which from a spiritual standpoint is bollocks it's just a complete wishful thinking it's a complete illusion that's not the case but people want to believe in this because otherwise they are completely empty naked in front of their fear of death Swami Shivananda says that even the pathological murderers psychologically kill because of fear of death 
by killing other people, they try to demonstrate their own superiority above death. So actually, psychologically, in the book Mind, it's Mysteries and Control, Swami Shivananda says that murderers are actually very afraid to die. That's why they commit murder. It's a sort of psychological morbid compensation which reaches terrible levels. So the great fear is the fear of death. It is the fear of death, says a philosopher, which makes us even more mortal than we already are. Those who manage to defeat their fear of death, they somehow raise to levels which are on the fringe of immortality. And this is always, it's one of the main poisons, Abhinivesha, the fear of death, is always mentioned in Buddhist texts, in classical yoga texts, in all sorts of texts of spirituality. And in the second part, Patanja, I'm sorry, Krishna here says, with it being established in yoga, you shall cast off, I'm sorry, I move to the next shloka. It says, even a little bit of this dharma delivers from the great fear. This is how you stop the great fear. He says, even a little bit of this spiritual practice. Maybe it's not black and white. Like you are full of fear of death, even if it was unconscious and you didn't know it was there, but a very clairvoyant person can see it shine through your actions and through your psychosis and through your things. But he says that it will diminish it. Even a little bit of this yoga will liberate one from this great fear. Again, maybe not 100% from the first month of yoga, but even if it delivers you 10%, 20%, 50%, 80%, that's going in the right direction. And therefore, he again praises yoga. He says this dharma eliminates the biggest poison of the human mind. And he says, in this yoga, there is no loss of effort, nor is there any harm like the production of contrary results or transgression. Remember this, I meditated much at this verse years ago, because Krishna says clearly, in the practice of yoga, no effort is ever lost. Commentators are very clear of this. If you did two years of yoga in this life, even if you don't reach yet the full emancipation, those two years you won't have to do them in your next life. They are in the box. They are in the bank. There is no effort is ever lost. You lay a brick on that wall, that brick will stay for you forever. And every life, when you decide to make a little spiritual effort and lay some more bricks, they will just add on. There is no regression. The effort is not lost. You cannot say, I did 10 years of yoga in this life and I didn't get to the full nirvana and alas, in the next life, I'll have to start from scratch. That's an illusion. You will not start from scratch, said Krishna, because on this path, no effort is lost. Everything accumulates. And, he says, there will be no negative things. Like you will also not create some form of involution or some form like you will do yoga and yoga somehow as some 
aberrant people believe sometimes yoga will produce anti-spiritual results. It's not yoga. Of course, a person can get a big ego and out of vanity and pride do lots of crazy stuff. That's not what yoga has taught that person to do. Therefore, that's not yoga. That's precisely the lack of yoga which will make that person do that. And thus, this is a beautiful, beautiful shloka. It's a reassurance from Krishna who says, in yoga, there is never loss of effort or negativity. Yoga is not meant to be negative. And this protects you from the great fear. It eliminates the fear of death. And he continues with praising it. These are his introductory words before he starts telling some technical things. He says, in this yoga, O joy of the Kurus, that's the family of Arjuna, so he is the joy of the family, the pride of the clan. In this yoga, O joy of the Kurus, the resolute intellect is one-pointed. So there is a one-pointed determination but many-branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of the irresolute. That's another thing which, funnily enough, came up in both yesterday's evening's meeting and for the advanced pupils in the meeting which we had two nights ago because we talked exactly about this one-pointedness or resolution that people who do yoga People who are into spirituality, they see more and more clearly what the goal is, what life is, how life should be lived. And Krishna says, in this, in yoga, the mind of the determined person, he says the resolute intellect, is one-pointed. There is a clear resolution, resolve and determination. But he says, many branched and endless are the thoughts of the irresolute. Like the people who are not focused in yoga, their mind is the monkey, the famous monkey. And thus their mind is many branched and endless. It, these are not people of one thought. With one thought, you drill like a laser. If you dig one well, says Ramakrishna, you, you will find water. But if you spread your effort in ten wells, you might not reach water with any of them. Because the total length of the digging in ten wells, put in one, would have reached to the water. And that is why yogis understand this principle, this need to focus, to focus your effort. If you do five years of yoga and five years of Tai Chi and five years of astrology and five years of Zen and five years of... You are digging lots of wells. And that's your mind which cryptically prevents you from digging deeper than a certain level and it creates in you difficulties, tiredness, annoyance, boredom, all sorts of things so that you are actually never going deep enough. You are always stopping after. There is always a period of enthusiasm. And then after that enthusiasm goes, the mind starts playing its shenanigans with you. And thus, people are too diverse, too, too spread in their concerns. Not only the yogis 
praise this one-pointedness that you have to focus on what you do if you really want to obtain results. But even people who have succeeded in the world, for example, Napoleon Bonaparte, who is not at all a spiritual person after all, he's a warmonger, a person torn by lots of egoism and by lots of ambition, personal ambition, pride, vanity, Napoleon Bonaparte says, I am afraid only of the man of one book. The man who in his life read only one book, that's a fanatic who will go till the end of the universe, will go till there's no limit, forever. And Napoleon says, that's the only man that frightens me. Like, he, he says, that's a worthy adversary. The others who want ten things will get nothing because they don't focus and they are weaklings. Napoleon Bonaparte knows what gives power and success. Just one-pointed determination. Of course, in spirituality that is so difficult because how can people be one-pointed on something which they don't really understand or know. The spiritual ideals are very often immaterial, fuzzy for people, and you are supposed to be one-pointed. But Buddha was one-pointed. He decided to find the answers to the problems of old age, disease, suffering, ignorance. He just went into the forest at all costs. He sacrificed everything. And he decided not to go from there before he found the answer to those. And so he did. And he did dig a well deep enough. That is why this is precisely the principle which Krishna announces here. He says, with yoga, you are going to get a one-pointed determination. Either that determination is manifested in helping a dying parent, or in raising a child, or in making money, or in having academic studies, or whatever, or in meditating and reaching higher states of consciousness, there is always going to exist a one-pointedness of effort. And he says, in a rather deprecating way, he says, many branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of those that are irresolute, of those who do not do yoga, and who do not have this resolution, this one-pointedness. Krishna is a profound knower of the human nature. He understands how humans are. And he continues. He says, the undiscerning who are engrossed in the letter of the Vedas, O Partha, O Arjuna, and declare that there is nothing else, Speak flowery words. That was the poison of the Indian society in those days, and still it is today. If you go in places like Rishikesh and others, you'll find lots of these hollowed, bra hollow, hollow, like empty Brahmins who just wear white clothes and they are supposed to be spiritual people, and they just say flowery words about the Vedas, and they say there is nothing better than the Vedas. And basically Krishna starts and will continue lower. 
he makes fun of them. He says, these are people, it's exactly like the Mormons or somebody who say, our book is the best. There is nothing but the book of the Mormon. The Bible and the book of the Mormon, these are, no, you shouldn't read anything else. These are the container. Every Christian sect will tell you that the Bible is the fundamental alpha and omega text. Every Arabian, every Muslim person will tell you that you have to read the Quran and nothing else is necessary. In every culture you have something like the Talmud or the something which is the Alpha and the Omega and you should read that one and that's where God speaks and that's where all the teachings are. Exactly that for the Hindus, especially in the old days, were the Vedas. The Vedas, the Vedas, the Vedas, let nobody criticize the Vedas. And although Bhagavad Gita is the Bible of the Hindus, and here Krishna makes fun slightly, not very grossly, but he kind of deprecates the Vedas. He says, the people with, he says, flowery speeches uttered by the unwise who take pleasure in the eulogizing words of the Vedas. O Arjuna saying, there is nothing else. Krishna says, of course there is a lot else. And the Vedas are not such a big deal after all. You don't get anything practical from the Vedas. I don't know if you realize that 3,000, 5,000, whatever years ago, Krishna saying such things is stabbing the whole Brahmanic, Vedic, Hindu culture right in the heart. He is exactly like Jesus who comes and says, Hypocrites, scribes, Phariseans, you pretend you stay to the spirit of the law of Moses, but you are just a bunch of hypocrites and you don't go to the kingdom of heaven and you don't allow other people to go to the kingdom of heaven because your so-called religiousness is a hypocrisy. You just keep repeating words, but you don't do. Like Jesus was the truly spiritual person in all that bunch of people. And funnily enough, he was the one who got most flack for it while he obviously was the real thing through his lifestyle and through his doings. And it's exactly the same in India. Way before Krishna, India has its own scribes and Phariseans. Those were the Brahmins. The Brahmins were already gone. Cuckoo, and they were just speaking big flowers, flowery words about the Vedas, saying the Vedas are everything. There is nothing else but the Vedas. And Krishna already dismisses that. He says, the undiscerning, the unwise, the people who have no discrimination, they keep on talking this rubbish that, oh, the Vedas, there is nothing else. And this has become so much more acute from Krishna. Krishna speaks this thousands of years ago. And if it was true at that time, how much more true it is today when so many centuries have passed and the humanity has changed even more, and some of those aspects decayed even more. And he continues criticizing the Phariseans of his time. He says, filled with desires, with heaven as their goal, their words proclaim birth as the reward of action, and prescribe many special rights for the attainment of enjoyment and power. The Vedic society was filled up with this. How to get more richness, how to gain a kingdom over some kingdom, 
they had rituals like the Ashva Meda or something, the sacrifice of the horse, that a king who wanted to double up his kingdom should sacrifice a horse to the gods. And there was all this nonsense of the old societies which maybe had a meaning for those people in that yuga where it was conceived, but at the time when Krishna speaks and when Arjuna lives, these were obsolete already. What to speak about today? Today they are ten times obsolete. They are, and still, in India there are many people who keep on having flowery speeches about the Vedas and praising and going into that direction. And again, it's not that Krishna says that the Vedas are wrong. He says it's not used to just make pompous speeches and say that's the whole thing, because that's not true. The Vedas represent a milestone in our culture, in the evolution of humanity, but that's not the whole thing. Humanity has grown up from that level to the next levels. And he says these people proclaim birth as reward of action and prescribe many special rights for the attainment of enjoyment and power. This is the common understanding which even today exists in the regular societies, in the secular societies in Asia, even in the Western religions, but slightly in a different way. And the thing is, if you behave, if you gain merit, if you feed the monks, if you give donations to the temples, if you do good actions and rituals and pay for some special blessing with a hundred monks chanting for you, this is going to give you a good birth. It's going to give you enjoyment. So basically it's good karma. This is going to give you good karma. And he says clearly, with heaven as their goal. Heaven. Heaven, the translation of, of heaven, you know, for it's like Svarga, Svarga Loka, the heavens, Om Bur Buva Svaha, Svaha Svarga, Buvar Loka, Bur Loka, Buvar Loka, Svarga Loka, the three worlds. Svarga Loka would mean in technical yogic terms the causal world where the gods dwell. So the purpose is to go to heaven, to go to the world of the gods to Devachan, to the causal world. But Krishna is very clear, this is not the purpose of yoga. This is not what I, Krishna, am preaching and what spirituality is about. I'm trying to get you beyond the causal world, above the causal world. The causal world is not good enough. So he basically criticizes, he says, these people have as goal heaven. I'm offering something which is beyond heaven. Even heaven is not permanent and it's not good enough. The condition of life of the devas is superior. But that's not what I, Krishna, am teaching about. That's why he says it here. He says, full of desires, having heaven as their goal. Like, this is negative. It's not, you'd see, oh, having heaven as goal, it's positive. No. Actually, Krishna criticizes, saying heaven, having heaven as goal is too little. It's a limited goal. Having heaven as their goal, they utter speech which promises birth as the rewards of one's actions and prescribe various specific actions or rights for the attainment of pleasure and power. That is, therefore, a sort of secular religion, 
a materialistic religion in which all the purpose of the spirituality is not liberation, not communion with the divine consciousness, not pure spirit, it's not the love, the cosmic love. The purpose of it is to get pleasure, power, a good birth, which are all of them rewards, small trinkets ultimately, because you all the time want to get a bone from the universe. You want to get a gift from the universe. I behave right, so I'm going to have pleasure in my life, power, good thing, I go to heaven after my death, and then have be reborn either in heaven or back on this planet, but in very good conditions, blah, blah. Again, do not jump into the opposite extreme. Krishna does not say that's wrong utterly. Krishna simply says it's not good enough. It's an incomplete spirituality. This is not what metaphysical spirituality is about, which says go all the way to the creator of the universe. Unite, come, go back to your source. It is a spirituality, and maybe it did serve some generations of people once upon a time, but Krishna says, Arjuna, we can do better. One can do better than that. So that is why he, speaking these things, he actually criticizes it in a very gentle way. And he says, the resolute state of intellect, he basically means here a sort of discrimination. This resolute state of intellect is a sort of viveka, the discrimination of what is really desirable, what to focus on. The resolute state of intellect does not arise in the mind of those who are deeply attached to enjoyment and power and whose thought is captivated by those flowery words. So he basically has said in two shlokas, he went and said people like this say flowery words and they pretend the Vedas are the big thing and so on. And he says the real spiritual awakening, the discrimination, viveka, does not arise in the minds of those who are attached to enjoyment, power, or who are captivated, who like to hear themselves talking those flowery words, like the Vedas say, there is nothing better than the Vedas. Listen to the wisdom of the Vedas. There is wisdom in the Vedas, but it's the spiritual practice which takes one to the crown chakra. It's not just dwelling endlessly into some texts which are also outdated. So Krishna is the pragmatic type. Krishna is a bit cruel. He cuts through the things. He doesn't like bullshit. He doesn't. He is really focused on the practical things as all his life uh, demonstrates. So he basically says two things. By being captivated by those teachings, you will not reach Viveka, which for him is a symbol of enlightenment. Viveka is one of the characteristics of the enlightened spirit, which can discriminate between real and unreal, between ephemeral, I'm sorry, between, let's put them on the same side, real and unreal, between eternal and ephemeral. So that's, of course, the main thing in spirituality. Oh God, help me distinguish the real from the unreal, the eternal from the ephemeral, because many people make wrong choices. And those wrong choices are, of course, produced by our desires. And also, 
he says, those who are deeply attached to enjoyment and power. That's quite obvious. He doesn't say a new thing here, but he criticizes at the society of his time because the society of his time came from a very tantric perspective, accepting enjoyment, power, but at the same time losing its compass. Here there is a very deep historical reason because the Vedic tradition has something very beautiful and very wise into it. The Vedic tradition is not a dry, ascetic tradition. The founder of the Vedas, the founders, the, how, the, the founding fathers of the Vedic tradition are, tra through tradition are considered to be the rishis, the seven rishis. And the seven rishis were married men with families. Some of them had children whose names we know, who were famous spiritual personalities as well. And the rishis propose a spirituality which is a tantric spirituality. It is a spirituality of middle of the way, not ascetic, not to live in a cave, to live in a house and to have the comforts of a householder. Because they come from Satya Yuga, they come from a time of humanity where spirituality was spontaneous, easy. There were not so many demonic things. It was not like Milarepa fighting with all the Manipuristic demonic Tibetans of his time. It was not like Jesus fighting with all the Manipuristic demonic Jewish priests of his time. It was not like Rumi or St. Francis of Assisi fighting with lots of narrow-minded, Manipuristic, greedy, low-consciousness people. That happens very much in Kali Yuga. But in Satya Yuga, this was like a fortunate time. Few people living in a spiritual world, closing their eyes and going in spiritual states. So spirituality was flowing easy. There was no problem for the rishis to have a wife, to have a household, to raise a child or two, to close their eyes and go in samadhi every day and to kind of blend the spirit with the nature all the time. And thus their teaching is very much a tantric teaching to put together Purusha with Prakriti, Shiva with Shakti, to have a sort of integral spirituality, as a modern philosopher calls it. But this, unfortunately, got slowly, slowly deviated. The Yugas went from Satya Yuga to Treta Yuga, maybe to Dvapara Yuga, and the Vedas were still there, but the understanding got skewed. Like you can be sure that the understanding of the first Jews when Moses came from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, especially after all those predicaments and upheavals and crossing through the Red Sea and living in the desert and the story with the golden calf and all that stuff, there was a strong impression and people were really pure, puritanic, and they were really trying to live according to the great precepts. And you can be sure that a thousand years later, at the time of Jesus, there was a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of lip service and a lot of vanitos, arrogant priests, a lot of fake people who pretended to represent Moses and to represent the Jewish spirituality but it was a fake spirituality, like today so many priests pretend to represent Jesus, and everybody can see that they don't, 
and it's actually there are terrible levels. The same story again and again in Christianity nowadays. It happens with Islam, it happened with Judaism, it happened with Brahmanism and the Vedas. Always a tradition in the beginning, it's very fresh, very pure, very enthusiastic, very spiritual, and then people manage to drown it. In a century or two, or in thousand years, or in two thousand years, people will manage to pollute a message, to pervert it, to bring misunderstanding to it. And that is why, precisely, it is necessary for divine spirits to come to earth periodically to refresh the message, to give another message, because people lose it. Even the best spirituality given to them, an avatar like Krishna lives in a human body and talks to Arjuna and teaches things which are brilliant and humanity forgets it. Uh, an avatar like Jesus comes and gives brilliant teaching and people live by it for a few hundred years and then they bury it again. And that is why I am saying this that he basically does not say that these things are utterly wrong. He simply says the Vedic tradition was good and it was prescribing even some tantric ideals. It was an integral spirituality. But unfortunately with the time people took that part and perverted it. The four pillars of a successful life in the Vedic tradition are... Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. Dharma means to have a sort of religious, moral, ethical, righteousness system in your society. Like people going to church on Sunday and behaving in moral ways. Actually, the Vedic system says that's important in the society. Because you have to cater to the right brain hemisphere. You have to cater to people's need for something mystical and suprasensory and so on in life. And then Artha, that's Dharma. Artha is like a, a table or a cow with four legs. If one of the legs is missing, the table will tip or the cow will not be able to stand, they say. So all of them, Dharma, a sort of religiousness. Artha, Artha means material prosperity. The Vedic society says everybody should be prosperous. Everybody should be wealthy. Everybody should be well off. Everybody should be comfortable. There is no need for poverty. There is no need for anybody to be a beggar or something. Which is a very beautiful ideal. That's tantric. That's a tantric way of thinking. Like you don't need to be poor so that you become virtuous and you think of God. You can think of God without being poor. Poverty is not a requisite of spirituality or a prerequisite of spirituality. So... Artha, and then Kama, like in Kama Sutra, like why not have a good sensual life, have relationships and whatever, either it's a multiple marriage, polygamy, polyandry, single marriage, open marriage, relationships, they had marriage in the forest, in the Kama Sutra says, if a man likes a woman and they cannot get married by the family or by the, they can go in the forest and marry in front of the Dakinis in the forest, and that's still a legitimate marriage. As long as you take as your witness to the marriage, some superior forces, some superhuman forces. So, 
so they considered Kama is good because not everybody does Udhyana Bandha, not everybody meditates eight hours per day. People have a sexual energy. If you don't express that sexual energy in a healthy way, it will become perverted, twisted. You become a weirdo, you become a pervert, you become sick, you become, it's much better to have a solution, uh, a society in which the sexuality is expressed freely and healthy. There should be karma, must be expressed. It's part of the health of the human being. That's also a bit of a tantric approach. Although here tantra is a bit more specific because it uses deliberately the sexual force, at least that sexual part of tantra, and as such it has a special technology concerning it. But in the regular society, no, the Vedic society said citizens, the citizens should be sexually satisfied, happy. We need to have a society in which people sexually feel good. Whatever they do, no, they have to do good, beautiful things, harmonious. And this is how Kama Sutra got to be written, to encourage the common householder to have a nice sexual life. A good sexual life. Kama Sutra teaches you techniques how to have more sexual satisfaction, more erotic things, more psychological and emotional satisfaction. And it also warns you about mistakes and excesses. There have been people who had to have a little bit too much of this and some trouble resulted. There have been people who have gone too much in this direction and again trouble resulted. So it's a very good teaching about living your eroticism and sexuality in a harmonious way which is within some decent limits where you can be healthy and consider yourself satisfied at least according to each one's karma. So Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. Moksha means liberation. You must have the final freedom. There are three things which happen in the world and one thing, three plus one, always three and one on top of everything, like the number pi, three point something. The fourth of them, which is moksha, transcendence, like you must have these and the possibility to transcend. But the later Vedic society of which Krishna complains here, had forgotten the moksha. The moksha was not there. And then it was exactly like a pyramid that is decapitated. It was exactly like number six without seven, which is the symbol of the devil, six, 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 up till here, but exactly not the jewel in the crown, the thing which completes and makes the divinity. So you have Everybody in the Vedic society at his time were going for Dharma, like they were having these very rigid Brahminic rules. You cannot do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't intermarry between castes, you shouldn't... All sorts of rules which were more or less obsolete. And they were yearning for Artha. Oh, the richness was on everybody's lips, as it is today. And Kama. Oh, Kama is there. This is the hypocrisy of today, no? You go to the neo-protestant sects or the evangelical conservatives or George W. Bush, there is a bullshit religion. I'm sorry if it offends any one of you, but uh, it is seen the tree is known by the fruits, so you can see that that's a lip service fake religion without feeling. You can see 
that there is a lot of insistence on wealth, money. Well, people should get rich all the time. That's God. That's the modern, the 20th century God. And kama, like sex, sex clubs, swinger clubs, prostitution, pornography, everything. People should be free to do whatever. Sexuality, and of course, because of lack of wisdom, it runs in all the dead ends and in all the stupid places and people are getting neurotic and psychotic instead of getting fulfilled and harmonized. And there is no moksha. When somebody wants to reach moksha, that person is suddenly a sectarian, fanatic, extreme, dangerous, bizarre, marginal person. As long as you have just dharma, artha, kama, that's okay. We can fake a society with that. And Krishna says that the spiritual part is missing. These people don't want to transcend and to go to the divine. They actually want just an enjoyment forever in some lower. Even when they speak about heaven, heaven is a place where they want to go to have a great time. That's all there is to it. A need for great time on various levels, at various levels of existence. So... That's why he says, for those who are much attached to pleasure, power, artha, kama, whose minds are drawn away by such teachings, dharma, religiousness, but without the practice, that determinate faculty is not manifest, that is steadily bent on meditation and samadhi. This state of superconsciousness will not appear. Basically, Krishna denounces a flaw of the society in which they live. And he starts explaining even more deep because now he comes to, he wants to speak about yoga and he made a sort of introductory. And he says, the Vedas' concern is with the three gunas. Be without the three gunas, O Arjuna. Freed from duality, ever firm in purity, independent of possessions, possessed of the self. Here is great teaching condensed in one shloka. He says the Vedas deal with the three gunas. It's exactly what is expressed in yoga. The three gunas appear in Ajna Chakra. Sattva guna in the middle, Tamas guna on the left side, Rajas guna on the right side. That's the polarity of the gunas. They are forces, causal forces of Ajna Chakra. So he says the Vedas deal, they are concerned with the three gunas. That means they go up till Ajna Chakra. Maybe the people who used them before, they already had a great opening of Sahasrara and they needed just something to bring them here and from here they would close the eyes and naturally go there. So they didn't feel the need to build a ladder all the way up because they had long arms and if when they reached to the last step of their ladder it was good enough for them to grab the last level and go there. The ladder was sufficient but that instrument is not good today anymore. He says the gunas, the Vedas are concerned with the three gunas. There's nothing wrong in the three gunas. We teach them in yoga in the second level. The gunas are a big issue in yoga. Great yogis like Aurobindo and Shivananda and everybody talks about the gunas. They are important in the yoga practice. But 
It's not the end of the ladder. Ajna chakra is not the end of the issue. Sahasrara is the end of the issue. That's where God is. That's where spirituality is. And that's why Krishna says a crazy thing. He says, be without the three gunas, O Arjuna. Which means go beyond the three gunas. Rise and people say it's good to be sattvic. Actually, Krishna says, even sattva sucks. It's still in Ajna Chakra. Go beyond Ajna Chakra. Go beyond the three gunas. That's the message. So, be, he says, be above the three gunas, O Arjuna. Free yourself from the pair of opposites. That's duality, vikalpa. Free yourself from this yin and yang or vikalpa, which again means go beyond Ajna Chakra, where the polarity ends. The two nadis, Ida and Pingala, they join in Ajna Chakra, and in Sahasrara there is no more polarity. So Krishna says the same thing. He says, free yourself from the pairs of opposites. And ever firm in purity, and here it's very, very interesting, because he says, free yourself from the three gunas, but he says, however, firm in purity. Firm in purity, the word which is used in Sanskrit here, is sattva. He just said, free yourself from the gunas, but he says at the same time, stay in sattva. Which is a very paradoxical thing, because technically he is very right. As all the yogis know, sattva makes possible the attainment of the higher states of consciousness. If somebody is utterly tamasic or utterly rajasic, it's almost impossible to jump from there to nirvikalpa, to something which is beyond the gunas. Although the three gunas have to be transcended, the one which is your platform, the one which is your springboard to go beyond the gunas, is however sattva. So he says a yogi should try to go beyond the gunas, being at the same time in the daily life, as much as possible sattvic. It's an apparent contradiction in the same sentence. He says go beyond the gunas, at the same time being firmly remaining in the quality of sattva, independent of possessions, that's a way of expressing aparigraha, non-possessive, non-attachment, possessed of the self. He basically says, think of the self, be with the self. In the reading of Shivananda, he because I am always quoting for you two readings of this, according to great yogis. The Vedas deal with the three attributes of nature, the three Gudas. Be thou above these three attributes, O Arjuna. Free yourself from the pairs of opposites, solar and lunar, and ever remain in the quality of sattva, freed from the thought of acquisition and preservation, aparigraha from yoga, and be established in the self, in the who am I, be established in the self is also a reference to the consciousness which transcends Ajna Chakra and the Gunas, the forces of nature. And then he goes even harder, he becomes a little bit raw here when he says to the enlightened 
being to the enlightened Brahmin, all the Vedas are of no more use than, in a, than is a small well in a place flooded with water on every side. Like, you don't need a well in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of a lake, to be more specific, because you may think that the ocean is made of salty water and the well is drinking water. But a well in the middle of a perfectly clean lake is useless. And that's why he says, for the enlightened beings, the Vedas are completely obsolete. Why would they need them? He says to the Brahmana who has known the self, when you have reached to the self, all the Vedas are of as much use as is a reservoir of water in a place where there is a flood. There is no need. There is water everywhere. In this way, he is again quite politically incorrect. He again turns and says, go beyond the gunas, <coughs> do this and that. And he says, otherwise the Vedas are of no utility. He doesn't really say that they are of no utility. He says, to the enlightened being, they become obsolete. Never go into extremes. Krishna doesn't really say they are absolutely useless. For a person living in the society and having not reached enlightenment, the morality, the ethics, the harmony prescribed by the Vedas may still be of great meaning. But for an enlightened being, it's not so. So Krishna denounces the ideal of the, his present-day Vedic society in just limiting itself to the three gunas, and he says, actually, one is supposed to go beyond that. And that's why he says, hard, it's a pretty hard statement, where he says to the enlightened being, all the Vedas are of no more use than a well in the middle of a lake. It's like, it can be transcended. <clears throat> and now, he, in the shloka number 47, he comes to the point where he touches a little bit on the karma yoga as well. Again, his main emphasis is not fully on karma yoga as a special branch of yoga. Later, he will move into that. Now he speaks about yoga in general. And in this chapter number two, there are actually more references to raja yoga, to the yoga of the mind and uh, those approaches to yoga. In further chapters, he is going to be really, really focused on karma yoga. Not in all of them, of course, in some, as I said. So he told to him, don't be fooled by all that Vedic mumbo-jumbo. You have to go beyond that. And now he continues saying, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. There is so much wisdom in this statement. You have control over action, but not over its fruits. One person wants to do a good action, and he does it with a clean heart. He builds an institution, he does something, a hospital, and a lot of shit happens. Three years later, 30 years later, 300 years later, a lot of shit happens. You don't know what the fruits of the action will be because you have no control. Even when you do action with the best intention, you still can control what you do. But the effects of the action 
can be completely unexpected. The universe can surprise us by enhancing the effects of our action hundred times over. No, like in the time of Spartacus, thousands and maybe tens of thousands of people, gladiators and rebels, have been crucified along via Appia, just as an example of the slaves should not rebel. And 70 years later or 100 years later, one man is crucified in Jerusalem. And the effect of that one crucifixion is in the history and in the consciousness of the world much bigger than all the thousands of crucifixions or tens of thousands which happened with the gladiators of Spartacus. Therefore, the universe has the capability to either multiply and enhance some effects or diminish and turn them around in a way which is always for us impredictable. The human brain is not cut for calculating things at the level of the spheres, at the level of the music of the spheres, at the level of the orbs of factors. As Albert Einstein said, we have frail spirits which cannot really perceive all this magnificence. Our spirits are frail and that is why Krishna acknowledging it. You come from a human race, from a human planet, and you have limitations. That's the body which you have for now. That's the world in which you are incarnated. And he says you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Ah, the divine consciousness knows always where the fruits will go because the divine consciousness is above the mind. It contains the macrocosmic mind. The macrocosmic mind is subordinated to the Shiva consciousness, to the cosmic consciousness. That's why the cosmic consciousness has control over the effects of the action. But human beings don't have such a sphere of presence that they can take into account all the factors possible. So, he tells him very clearly, you have control over action alone, like you can decide what you do, but the fruits, the fruits belong to God anyway, belong to the unknown, if you prefer not to say God. And therefore Krishna says, live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. So, since you cannot know where your action will lead, you just know what your intention is, what's in your soul when you do it. That's all that matters. But the fact, you cannot blame uh, Jesus that he created Christianity and 1,500 years later people were killing people in his name. That's, you cannot do that because again, action, you can do action. Jesus did the right action. But the fruits of the action can go in so many places that even somebody who is of divine intent Will all, there will always be flack. There will always be collateral stuff or things which are unexpected. So the conclusion, if you cannot control the fruits of the action, every intelligent person says, well, since I cannot control the fruits of the action, then Krishna says, live not for the fruits of the action. Don't even think about them. Do the action. Right now, the correct action is this. Yeah, but the... The fruits, I don't know what the fruits are. 
and I cannot control them. I consecrate them to God, like in karma yoga. I offer them. I don't know what the fruits will be. Of course, I may have expectations, but if I allow the expectations to rule over me, then that's not correct. So, he says, live not for the fruits of the action. Let not the fruits of the action be your motive, not, nor attach yourself to inaction. Because the mind is a wild beast. Some people say, I want to make you quit drinking or smoking. And then you tell them, no, it's not right now the moment. Leave me alone. I want to be myself. There are people who are demonized by the demons of alcohol or by the demons of tobacco. Or, and you try to help them quit smoking or quit drinking. And they get back to you. They get aggressive at you. They offend you. They say lousy things to you. You know, like... And eventually some people say, you know what, go fuck yourself. If you don't want me to, like people immediately jump from interest to indifference. Like if I can't help you, screw you. Then I completely go into inaction. That's what Buddha said. The mind always lives in extremes. Attachment or indifference. But as we know, Detachment is none of those. In terms of action, Krishna says, live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction, because he knows very well that's the danger. If you tell to the normal person, give up the fruits of action, people will say, you know what, then I'm going to do nothing. It's like I don't feel motivated. No, it's like you are asking me something, and I understand you have a philosophical reason. Yes, we cannot control the fruits of the action anyway, so you know then what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do nothing. Krishna says, that's also a mistake. You jump from one extreme where you are eagerly following the effects of your action, aiming for them, hunting for those. You are jumping into inaction. None of them is good. It's just to act, but without wanting the fruits of the action. That is the correct. To act, because this is the right thing to do, here and now. We don't know what shall be in a hundred years. Here and now, this is the correct action, the desirable action. And he says, perform action, O Arjuna, being steadfast in yoga, abandoning attachment and balanced in success and failure. Or another reading, establish in yoga, O Arjuna, perform actions, having abandoned attachment and becoming balanced in success or failure. And he concludes with a wonderful definition and sentence which says, balance of mind or evenness of mind is called yoga. Here is another definition of yoga given by Krishna himself. So he says, yoga is evenness of mind, what the Buddhist monks call equanimity, equality of spirit, balance of mind. Don't get happy, don't get upset. Be into an equanimity. Even when you learn to control your emotions, because of course there are events of life, nevertheless you have to eventually reach to a state of equanimity. It is something which has been interpreted usually in a Vedantic way, in an ascetic way. Like, 
don't have emotions, be equanimous, and kind of do not rejoice, do not get sad, and that's yoga. But there is another way, like for example, we can be confronted, let's take one of the mode points which differs between tantric yoga and the other forms of yoga or spirituality. Sex itself, in sexuality, the average person who has not done anything about sexuality or tantra is confronted with excitement, like losing your cool. You are going nuts because sex is so intense. And then Krishna, if you interpret it ascetically, says, that's not good. You have to cultivate equanimity, no high excitation. Please don't go into these dramas, ups and downs and this and that. But Tantra actually says something different. Tantra says you can perform lovemaking in a state of equanimity. Like you can be full of passion, but you can ride the tiger. You can learn to ride that wave in the middle of the passion. You are like in the eye of the cyclone. Shiva, the Shiva consciousness, is the eye of the cyclone. There is an island of peace, clear consciousness. On the outskirts I can see myself full of emotion, full of other things, but my spirit is still quiet. So actually to reach to this state, it's not only that you suppress every form of emotion. You can also learn to be quiet in the middle of it. But that is the tantric path to cope with it in an active way. So here, Krishna is still universal and correct. And he expresses the truth from both standpoints. Only that in the Indian culture, the yogis, many of the yogis being non-tantric, they preferred this interpretation, which is rather suppressive. Although what Krishna says can be interpreted in the other way as well. And that's why his words still are holding a divine value. So, he says once more, established in yoga, which means in spiritual realization, because yoga is a name which can also symbolize samadhi. Established in yoga, O Arjuna, he calls him in Sanskrit here, Kuru, member of the Kuru family because of the clan. But I sometimes skip over the many words used and I just say Arjuna because that's the name under which we know him. Established in yoga, O Arjuna, perform actions having abandoned attachment, like not with a view to the fruit, but because it's the right thing to do. And having become balanced in success and failure, like either you win or you lose, that's not the point. The point is that you could try. I remind you there is a wonderful dictum which is not given with any author. I found it as anonymous. It's one of those anonymous brilliant things which says what would you do if you knew that absolutely you cannot fail. If the angel of God would come and say now whatever you do you will not fail. What would you do? Like, wouldn't you try to create Eden on earth? Wouldn't you try to change? So why don't you do it? Because you are afraid that you'll fail. Because it looks like a task which is way too big. 
Therefore, this shows us immediately what keeps us. What would you do if you knew that you shall not fail? You absolutely will not. You cannot fail. Then, of course, you'd suddenly become bold. You'd say, well, if I cannot fail, then I would really push the envelope. That's exactly what you are supposed to do anyway. Because you don't do it because you are afraid of failure. And Krishna says, indifferent, become even to winning or losing, do it anyway. It will have an effect in the collective subconscious mind. It will have an effect upon humanity. Jesus didn't he start a utopian thing when he said the lamb shall lie together with the lion and there shall be no more killing. And like, isn't that utopian? Who, but how can a human being try to realize? Because everybody says, yeah, but Jesus was God. Yeah, but he had a human brain, had a human spine, he had a human prostate, he had a human body like everybody. He was a human being. He felt the world just like you and I. He thought like, just like you and I. He was created in this mandala of the human body. And starting from this human body, he raised his eyes to the highest heaven. Like, why not set the standards very high? And thus, he tells him to become balanced in success and failure. And that's very important. That's a way of expressing that you are not attached to the fruits of action. Everybody says, that's impossible. Why? It's impossible. Sure, it looks impossible. But other people have done things even more impossible than that. And the whole point is not if it looks possible or not. The whole point is if it's right. If it's right, then let's do it. Yeah, but we're going to fail. Sure, we're going to fail. No? That's the thing where spirituality is not an enterprise. It's very difficult to put spirituality in terms of business. Because, you know, in spirituality you'll start a utopian project, like fighting with the windmills, like Don Quixote. You have a dream and you live with that dream of Don Quixote. And everybody says you are utopian. You are not realistic. What to do? That's the Dharma. That's what comes from within. That's the right thing to be done. And he defines here that this evenness of mind, this is samatva, as it is called sama, the word sama, like in samadhi and in samyama and in samavesha and so many other words, samata and samana and so many other words in Sanskrit start from this root sama, which is like same, sameness, evenness, equality. So this evenness is called yoga. Well, Patanjali says, Yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind, the stopping of the mind. Well, when the mind stops, isn't it even? It is. Both definitions work. Like Krishna says, your mind becomes one, same, like an ocean without waves, undifferentiated. And Patanjali says, the yoga is when the mind has no ripples, it's again like an ocean without waves. That's it. That's exactly a very good image. They both say the same thing, although in slightly different ways. And he says, then he continues, 
Because he says, do actions this yoga way in which I'm teaching you. And then he says, far away indeed from enlightenment, from a balanced intellect, from this evenness, from this equality, far away from this is the normal action. The action which with purpose, the action with a goal. Oh, Arjuna again. Take refuge in the higher knowledge, in the intellect. Pitiful are those who live for the fruits of action. In the translation of Shivananda, to have it alternatively, he says, far lower than the yoga of wisdom, this yoga of wisdom which he talks about, is action. But he doesn't mean karma yoga. It means ordinary action. Action with an agenda. Action with greed for the fruits of the action. Seek thou refuge in wisdom. Wretched are they whose motive is the fruit. Pitiful are those who live for the fruits of action. It's pretty hard. Like Krishna says, you do action for motive. That's just ordinary action. That's far, far from what I am teaching here. Therefore, this shows us a lot of things and how necessary it is to rise our level of consciousness to a place where at least internally we can go in that direction. And he comes with another beautiful statement in the shloka number 50 where he says, He whose intellect is united with the self, he who has reached this state of evenness, of samadhi ultimately, casts off both good and evil even here in this life, which is a great breakthrough in Indian spirituality, because normally it was considered that you will transcend everything when you die. Also, some Christian sects say you cannot know God before you die. While you are in the body, you just have to do virtuous deeds. And when you die, you will meet with God and then you shall see if you did the right thing or the wrong thing. There is always this feeling that the physical body is a smoke screen. The physical body hides the spiritual reality. And therefore, we can't know. The physical body interferes, is in the way. So the ultimate verification of your good or bad actions will be as you die. And because of this, the concept of was mrityu mukta, that you reach liberation as you die. When you die, you go in mahasamadhi, and then you will take your spiritual reward for your life, for your spirituality. But then the yogis came early in the history of yoga with the concept of jivan mukta, that you can reach enlightenment in life. You can be still in the body and have reached enlightenment already and even have reached this liberation. And that's why he says, he whose intellect is united with the self, he who has reached endowed with wisdom, one casts off in this life both good and evil deeds. Not because one does not do things. They are not good and evil anymore. The duality does not exist because the mind is even. Things are being done in a state of evenness. Krishna is not the only one which says that. There is a beautiful story from the lore of the martial artists. Martial artists in being Buddhist, 
Of course, they had many concepts about these, and the concept of detachment and others is fully on there. And this is how detachment applies in martial arts. One of the plagues of the Japanese medieval society were gangs, thugs, thieves, road highway robbers and others. You see so many movies made about samurai times and there were so many thieves and gangs such as the famous The Seven Samurai of Kurosawa. No? There are thieves and the defense against those like in China, you had the Shaolin monks who were preparing to defend themselves for those, because in those manipuristic societies, the thieves were much more tough than we imagine today. The thieves could go to extreme lengths, especially in societies which were very brutal and very based on Manipura. You can imagine in a Japanese society with so much Manipura and things, that the gangs of thieves were proportionally tough such as the Yakuza's of the modern times and others, like there is always a proportionality. And um, so the problem was there, and that's why the martial artists and the, the, the samurai and people like this, they were supposed to be a sort of spiritual warriors. They had a little bit of function of being like the militia, like a sort of police force, because they were the only ones who could actively oppose thieves and robbers and the likes of them. They were the kshatriyas of the day. They were the knights of the day. They were the people bearing arms. Even when they were doing karate or jujitsu, or they were still their hands or their own arms. So there is a story about the disciple, a very advanced disciple of a grand master who is chopping wood in his hut. And the robbers, several of them, come to attack him. Not because they had something with him, they were robbers, they were coming to rob. And first to rob, they had to get over him. And this guy was in the back of his house, chopping wood. And a bit later, the master passes by, and he finds the young man chopping wood, and behind him there are four people, five people, bleeding to death, broken into small pieces, like, like really trashed. And it's like, obviously, there has been battle. And the master says, what happened here? And the pupil says, it's not a big deal. I was just chopping wood. These people came by, and then I was chopping wood again. Like, he beat them, he eliminated them, and he didn't even consider it an action. Like, he was a karma yogi. He simply said, these are demons, and they got the punishment of the demons. You know, it's like, I didn't do anything. I was just chopping wood. The only action of which I know is that I'm chopping wood. The other thing is, God beat them through me. But I didn't do that. It was like there is evenness. There is no interest in that. That's why he says, he whose intellect reaches, his, he who, whose spirit rises at this level, casts off both good and evil deeds. Even here, like this samurai young man from the story, he did not consider that he did something good. He did not consider that he did something evil. It was nothing. These were robbers and the gunas, Krishna says later, the gunas are acting upon the gunas. It's exactly like somebody comes and drives a car against a wall. They smash their head. Am I guilty? I am the wall. 
somebody bumps into me, they die. Tough luck, it's their problem. It's the gunas acting upon the gunas. I didn't do anything to them. These people tried to fight with a martial artist, with an expert martial artist. They smashed into a wall. Now they are dead. Tough luck. They have tried their strength with the wrong person. It's like, no, that's the way. It's a sim like he did not put any personal contents in it. This is not personal. It's just a force of nature which manifested. Of course, that force of nature was in his body, but his philosophy was deep and correct. And that's why Krishna says, at this level, good and evil make no sense anymore. Like you cannot accuse Jesus that he is not observing the Sabbath. You cannot accuse Jesus or his apostles that they are not washing their hands or that some of the disciples of Jesus took from a temple some offerings which were brought for God, and they ate of the prasad. That's apparently a sin. But Jesus says, no problemo. No, like, nobody did anything. The gunas act upon, there is no good, and there is no evil at my level. Of course, at the level of the person whose spirit is not there, there will always exist the taint of good or bad. That's why here he says, he whose intellect is united with the self, he who has reached this evenness of mind, yoga. So he says, for such a person there will be no difference. Therefore, says Krishna, devote yourself to yoga. Like yoga is a great thing, isn't it? He tells him, look, you reach this state, then even the good and the evil mean nothing. So do yoga. And he concludes with a sentence which almost all the translators of this text keep this half shloka there. It's one of the most wonderful definitions. Besides the definition of Patanjali, that yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind, besides the, the definition from the previous shloka where he said the evenness of the mind two shlokas ago, that evenness of the mind is called yoga, this is perhaps what I'm reading now, what I'm going to read now, is the second most famous definition of yoga from the whole Indian civilization. He says, therefore, devote yourself to yoga because, or as a conclusion, yoga is skill in action. This is a wonderful multiple level statement because, of course, it applies to karma yoga, which is the meat in Bhagavad Gita. And he says you have to act with skillfulness. That's exactly what I told you when you compare it with somebody pushes you and you push back or you roll them over your shoulder. But if you choose to roll them over your shoulder, you have to do it with skillfulness. Because if you are not good at your Aikido or Jujutsu or Judo or whatever you do, you are going to flop miserably and it's going to be really ridiculous. Therefore, you can do Aikido when you are skillful in Aikido. Yoga is skillfulness in action. Yoga is skill in action, which means a yogi can act at a level of karma yoga, which makes him go beyond this division of I good, evil and something. 
acting without concern for the fruits of the action, doing the right thing, offering everything to the divine, and thus, this definition is amazing because you can interpret it on any level. Yoga is skill in action. When you do Paschimottanasana, that's also a form of skill in action. You are skillful when you do your shoulder stand. That's a primitive skillfulness, a sort of gymnastic type of skillfulness. But it's a skillfulness. Not everybody does the shoulder stand. Not everybody gets from that sublimation of their energy to Vishuddha chakra or others. So yoga is skillfulness in action. Even asanas, pranayama, hatha yoga in general is an expression of a certain skillfulness in action. It's an action. And it's not just any action. It's a skillful action. But yoga is skillfulness in action means so many things. It means acting in the karma yoga in the karma yogic way also. It means simply yoga is skill in action. Like for example, you have want to do a karma yoga here with Agama. You want to type some of these satsangs or lectures. You want to clean a yoga hall. You want to decorate the yoga hall for the final ceremony. You want to do I don't know what comes. Do you want to arrange the library of Agama or something? Well, please show some skill in action. Yoga is skill in action. What is done should be done skillfully. Not only the asanas, not only karma yoga as a general principle, everything between them, everything in the range, is skillfulness in action. I don't know if you realize what a great implication, what a great range of implication this statement has. Because then basically says if you want to do everything the yogic way, you better do it skillfully. Yoga is skill in action. If you are doing an action and you have no skill, and you say, oh, the guys from... Uh, Agama, ask me to wire because the yellow bulbs don't turn on. I don't know any why. And they ask me to fix the electric installation. Then better consult somebody or study so that when you start putting your hand on the electric installation, you do it skillfully. There are many people who do their karma yoga like shit because they say, I am not an electrician, I am not a librarian, I am not an accountant, I am not a manager, I am not so, I am doing whatever I can. That's not what Krishna says. Krishna says what you do, you have to do skillfully. Yoga is skill in action, which means when you do karma yoga, you do not do it with indifference and with negligence. When you feel indifference and negligence, you are out of grace. It's an alarm signal. It says you are not doing karma yoga. Sit down, meditate, consecrate again. You went out of that state of grace because that state of grace is automatically defining it as skillful action. When you are in full consecration, your action is skillful. When you act skillfully, you consecrate it. And thus, 
This is a very, very important statement in yoga. That's why it's one exactly like Patanjali tells us so much when he says yoga is the stopping of the mind. This state of awe of the mind. And we use it for thousands of years. Yogis have used it to define, to clarify to their pupils, to teach. And it's an excellent definition. Also, this one is the second most famous definition of yoga. Yoga is skill in action. And remember, logically it means if there is no skill in action, there is no yoga. It's not yoga. It's as simple as that. Therefore, this is a great, this is a great thing speaking against indifference, defining detachment and renouncing the fruits of action. In a very spiritual way, there is a causal link there, which very few people, I have even seen very few commentators noticing this implication. Like they commented Bhagavad Gita intellectually and scholarly, but they did not realize the implication of such a divine action. Skillfulness in action. Whatever, like that man chopped wood and then he beat five thieves. And then he chopped wood. He beat them very skillfully. That was skillfulness in action. He was untouched, unscathed. He kept on chopping wood very calmly, as if nothing would have happened. A skillfulness in action. Either it's a formidable action, or it's a small action, or it's pleasant, or it's unpleasant. Skillfulness in action. That is a wonderful definition, and meditate on it at many, many levels. No, you see people here teaching yoga, doing things in a yoga school. Most of them are expressing skillfulness in action because it's karma yoga. That's the result of consecration. That's the result of intent, of the intent to consecrate. Remember, we do not control the effects. We control only the action. I can decide that I'm going to chop wood. I decide that I'm going to type something. What comes from it, it's not mine anyway. Then why hanker for it when it's not? Why try to assume it's mine when I know for sure it's not mine? It's only a childish attachment. Thus, we stop here to the 50th shloka with this fundamental definition where Krishna says you can surpass good and evil in this very life, devote yourself to yoga, yoga is worth it, and yoga is skill in action. Let us stop just for a second to absorb the depth of the words of Krishna.
And that will do. Let us stop here. Namaste to all of you. With this we conclude.